Good morning. Welcome again to River Valley Community Church. Welcome home family. It's so great to see everyone here worshiping with us this Sunday. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we are going to continue our series going through the book of First Thessalonians, and we'll be in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 5 there in a little bit, the first 11 verses, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and get ready. If not, don't worry, because when we get there, it'll be on the screen as well. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive the word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, a day in which we can come before you, a day in which we can sit under your word, lift our voices in song, pray together all to you. Lord, I just pray for this time as we look at what you would have us see through your word that we can be moved by it. Not just a merry, merely a, a matter of emotions, but be moved in our minds, in our very being to follow you. To live as a response to this great salvation that you have achieved for us through your son. Lord, I just pray for this time that we can be your people as you would have us be your people. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in college, there's, a, there's an instance, actually uh, several instances are very clear on my mind. There was this guy who chose to, I guess, try to talk to people about who God was by wearing a sandwich board that lists all the people who are going to hell. And he would stand out in front of uh, the student center at my college, and he would yell at people about the coming judgment. And included in that long list of people who are going to hell, according to that sandwich board, weren't college students as well. So I was like, oh, I don't think he knows his audience that well. But he would rant and rave, and it's funny because when we think about judgment or the fact that there is a coming judgment that the Bible makes very clear, sometimes we can't help think about figures like that. Or the person who's sitting on the corner on the busy road with a big sign just yelling at cars, or even a sign that says, judgment is coming, but they're smiling and waving, which seems kind of weird. But we can't help but think about those individuals who kind of are really forward with this fact that judgment is coming. It seems kind of weird, because we don't like to talk about that. We don't actually like to talk about judgment as a whole society. Our whole society is really judgment opposed, you might say. There's one thing society at large seems to agree upon, which is the fact that you can't judge people. In fact, the only people that people like to judge are the people who judge people. And so people are always like, you can't judge. And then some people try to maybe make it a little bit more grounded and make statements like, well, only God can judge me. As if that's a comfort when you look upon them and say, you're probably the last person who should find comfort in that. That only God could judge you. But we're opposed to this idea that there's judgment. We're opposed to this idea that God actually judges. But when we come to the Bible, it's very clear that God stands as the good judge. The ultimate judge. That when the end of this age comes to be, there will be standing the good judge who is going to be judging all of humanity and that can fill us with some weird emotions. 
We know this to be true because our great confessions of the faith talk about how when Jesus comes again, he'll, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Even our statement of faith here at River Valley talks about the coming judgment and the hope we have in that. But when we start thinking about what that means, that God will judge, we can probably be a little fearful. What does that mean that God is going to be judging us? How should we feel about this fact that the Bible makes so clear? Well, I think in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul addresses the coming judgment and how Christians should respond. So if your Bibles open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We'll be reading those first 11 verses. This is a continuation of his argument that he ended in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he's talking about the coming of the Lord and he's giving people hope that their loved ones will be included in uh, uh, Jesus' return. And now, starting in verse 1, he says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk get, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that, we, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What are we going to, what are we, should we take from this passage? As Paul is saying, the Lord is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, and how they should respond. Well, I would just offer you this for us, that in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. In Christ, there is no fear of of judgment. When we're talking about how should we feel about God judging us and God going to evaluate us, God standing as a judge over us at the end of time, when we're in Christ, there should be no fear. That immediately when we start talking about who we are, who God has made us, whether we're children of the night or children of the day, we see that Paul, the Bible, God actually separates humanity into two camps. And their response to the coming judgment is very different. One camp, those in Christ, those who know who Jesus Christ is, should have no fear of the coming of the Lord because they know the truths of the gospel. They know that Jesus Christ has paid for all their sin. Their debt has been wiped clean. It was nailed to the cross with their Savior. They have nothing to fear from God, for there is no anger, no condemnation, no disappointment, no frowny face from God left for them. All that is left for them is God's love lavished upon them day by day as he orchestrates history for their good. That's what those in Christ know. 
And so when the day of the Lord comes, when judgment comes, there is no more fear, for they know it will be good, and they'll be with their Lord always. It's a different picture for those who don't stand in Christ. For those who don't stand in Christ, the day of the Lord should bring fear. It should bring trembling. It should bring them a reflection about who they are and where they stand in relationship to their God. But when we read this passage in 1 Thessalonians, we read it written by Paul to this church, and he's encouraging them that there is no fear here. That the judgment is real, but in Christ there is no fear of judgment. So he's talking about how the day of the Lord is coming. This phrase, day of the Lord, is, is, is rich in, in the Old Testament, and it comes over into the New Testament. It's talking about the return of Jesus. Before, you see it a lot in the prophets in the Old Testament, and it's talking about when God will judge the world, the day of the Lord. It has even richer history than that. Some people argue you see it right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when God comes down to talk to Adam and Eve and they're hiding because they sinned. And it talks about how God was going to walk with them in the spirit of the day. And actually the language there really could be translated in the judgment of the day, that his spirit was going to come to judge them because he knew what was going to happen. But you really see this theme of the day of the Lord pick up steam when you hit the prophets, especially the minor prophets. As these prophets, given the words by God, go into Israel and they talk about how God is going to be judging them. And so we see passages like this in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and met uh, and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Or Isaiah thirteen six. Well, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Joel two thirty one. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You hear that and go, wait, what, Adam? You just said there's no fear. That sounds very fearful. That sounds like a horrible thing that's about to happen. And again, if you're not in Christ, yeah. He's actually writing, all those prophets are writing, speaking to Israel, the nation who's gone astray, that they had assumed they're in. They were playing lip service maybe to honoring God, but their hearts were far from him and they were treating people poorly. They were doing what they wanted. And into that environment, these prophets came in and said, hey, you who think you should hope in the day of the Lord, woe be to you, for you will meet your end. That they had assumed that they were all good when they were not all good. That these prophets really urging those, the people of Israel to check themselves because they were really on this course where they were going to wreck themselves. So they were encouraging that. So when we read that, when we read the day of the Lord, that might be in the back of our brains. That might even be in the back of these Christians' brains of why they were fearful or why they might have some mixed feelings about what's going to happen. But as we see, the day of the Lord is this rich 
language of, the, of God is going to return and he is going to judge the world. And his encouragement to make sure you know who you are, or better yet, know who God is when he returns. Because in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. But it's interesting because Paul talks, starts talking about how they were being concerned about times and seasons or times and, and now dates, you might say. That the Thessalonians were making a mistake. <coughs> we already kind of talked about how they, they kind of maybe were being upset because they had heard rumors that Jesus already turned and they were wondering how that's going to happen or maybe he's going to return really soon. And so they're questioning, they're making this mistake of overly being concerned of these times and dates. They're like, when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And they're focusing on that. And so Paul starts this whole conversation saying, hey, concerning those times and the seasons, you don't have to have anything written to you because you know the truth that's, that we can't know. And we, as, as Bruce read before in Matthew 24, as we read right here, we don't know when the day of the Lord is. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But my goodness, does that not stop us from trying to figure it out? If you've been around the church at all, or even just know, been a student of church history, you know this is true. I just did a quick little search. I was like, how many people have, from the Christian church, have predicted the end was about to happen? And there was a lot from the very beginning. Because you've got to remember, the early church, as they witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they're like, this is it, to now days, hundreds upon hundreds of well-meaning Christians have looked upon the seasons and times and said, this is it. The end is nigh. Get yourself right with the Lord. And so you can just go through this list. It's actually really interesting how you have, you know, 365, the French bishop, Henry of Pointers, he talked about this is the end. Martin Torres in 400. Uh, there's three people who predicted Jesus' return was going to be in the year 500 because that's a nice round number, right? One of them said, oh, it didn't happen, so I'll change it to 800, because that's, again, a nice round number. Of course, when the year 1000 rolled around, oh my goodness, they were like, this is it, it's the millennium, it's happened. He'll come, and so many, many people, including at least one pope, predicted that Jesus would return in the year 1000. Pope Innocent III said that, um, that he would return in 2000, I mean, not 2000, 1033. And when that happened, he said, oh, wait, it's going to be 1,284. He must have done his math right. Martin Luther, who I, I, he's a hero of faith of mine, a great reformer, he said that the Lord will return no later than the 1600s. He's off a little bit. Christopher Columbus, whatever you think about Christopher Columbus, he said, no, the Lord's going to return in 1665. Wait, I was wrong, 1658. Con Mather, who was a Puritan who helped found our nation, said, hey, the Lord's going to return in 1667. No, 1716. Oh, no, I was wrong again. 1736. Maybe he was hoping he would be dead by then. John Wesley, uh, you know, another great Christian in history, said, no, the Lord's going to return in 1836. M moving into modern times, we have Pat Robinson, who said 1982, then 2007. Hal Lindsey said 1988. Jerry Falwell, Tim LaHaye, and others said, hey, the year 2000, that's it. And we could go on, but that's just a little snapshot of all these Christians who I'm going to give the benefit of doubt, well-meaning believers, 
trying to figure out when the end would return, when, when Jesus would return, when the end would happen. But yet, what we get again and again is Jesus himself saying only the Father knows, and then Paul reemphasizing this, the end's coming like a thief. You don't know when it's going to happen. And what is the mistake going on when we try to figure out the end or the dates or the times? Well, the Thessalonians' mistake, I believe, is that they thought they could prepare for it to happen. They thought they could maybe get their life right before Jesus came. Actually, their focus was no longer on Jesus returning and how they live every day singly, no matter what's going to happen for the Lord. But now their focus was maybe, how can I wait until the end? Or how can I make sure I'm right or do what I need to do before he comes? It becomes a very self-focused endeavor where they're all focused on, am I in the right or not? And they start thinking about what I can do. And as we see again and again through the Bible, that misses the point more often than not. When God wants us, he wants our whole being. And it's not about what you can do, but about who you are in relationship to him. And so I think the mistake was that they, they were focusing on themselves. And they thought they could figure out the timing. And so as Paul gives these two metaphors, you can't figure out the time. Because the day of the Lord is like a thief. I'm not a thief, but I, if I was one, I would not announce when I was breaking into your house. That's what the day of the Lord is. It comes unannounced. You, you, you don't know when it's coming. But it will break in, and it's going to be a dramatic effect. But at the same time, the day of the Lord is like uh, a birth, a, a pregnant woman who is, is struck by uh, uh, a pregnancy, labor pains. You kind of expect that's going to happen. There should have been some clues that you're about to give, a baby, give birth to a baby. But it's unannounced as well, but also it's unescapable, inescapable that it's going to happen. The day of the Lord is unannounced and also inescapable. That we don't know when it's going to happen, we don't know when he's going to return, but we cannot escape from this reality that the, that the Lord is going to return. And what is our reaction there? Do we think, oh man, if that's true, I better get my life right? If that's true, I better make myself look better? And if that's true, I better stop acting like I'm normally acting and change my act? Or do we hope in something more? Because in Christ there is no judgment. That when we see what Paul tells them, where their hope lies or what they should do when the day of the Lord is coming, what does he do? First and foremost, he tells them to remember who they are. He says, you are children of light, children of the day. He's focusing on who they are in Christ. You're not of the darkness. You're not of the night. You're not of this world anymore. You're children of the light. You're children of the day because that's who you are. How is that who you are? Because you're in Christ. How is that who you are? Because he has chosen you. He has brought you into his family. How is that who you are? Because you believe in him. How is that who you are? Because you trust in who God is. How is that who you are? Because he has given you a new nature when you came to him. How is that who you are? Because you've been made new in Christ. That is who you are. It's not because you somehow 
pick the 12 steps to make yourself better or put on a new set of clothes or look differently or start using the vernacular of the times. No, it's because he's made you who you are in Christ. And where is that hope says? He says, remember who you are. You're no longer children of the dark, of the night, to live like the rest of the world, getting drunk and being asleep at the will. But you are children of the light, children of the day, who know who Christ is. And because you are that, when Jesus comes, it should not surprise you, shock you, or cause you fear because you are expecting him and longing for him. He's telling them to remember who you are. That we have been changed in Christ. This is a fact of the gospel, that when we come to know who Christ is, we are fundamentally changed from the inside out. Our very natures are changed. We go from a rebel spitting in the eye of God to a saint who now longs to worship and serve him. We are changed. We have been brought from darkness to light. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you know Jesus Christ, that is you. That you once were a child of darkness and night, but he's called you out of that into his marvelous light, and now that's who we are in Christ. And in Christ, we have no fear of judgment. But right hand in hand with remembering who we are, we also remember how we are called to live and to act. That if we are children of the day, our behavior should be daytime behavior. If we're children of the light, we should be walking in the light as we're called to. That we are changed, that we should remember how he has changed us, how he has called us to this new light. Paul picks up this kind of metaphor of night and uh, day in Romans. In Romans chapter 13, 12 through 14, he says, The night is foregone and day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sociality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. Which is the same energy. Now, if, if we are of the light, if that's who we are in Christ, then we remember we no longer live like the dark. We remember what he's called us to do. We've put off those things that pertain to the darkness, and now we live in his light. And he tells us how we do that. That, number one, we keep awake. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. We keep awake. People who are not in Christ, they're asleep at the will of the light because they have no conscious conception of who's in control or who's behind this world or who's in charge or how the end is coming. And they're asleep and they're headed to destruction. And that's who they are. But we are called to be awake. We're aware of these spiritual realities. We're aware of who God is. We're aware of his great love for us. We stay awake. We don't nod off about these facts. We actually love them and lean into them. We keep awake. That we're longing for the coming of the Lord 
as the watchman stands guard, and he's longing for this, as we read in Psalm 130. We don't just keep awake, we also stay sober, right-minded. We don't get wrapped up in the ways of the world of drunkenness and orgies and sensualities and quarreling and dissension. No, we stay sober, right-minded, because we're given a new mind in Christ, and we walk and operate in those things. And we keep our eyes and our mind on the things of God and we focus on Him and we know the truth of who He is. And we keep awake and we stay sober because we remember how we're called to act. And we put on the armor of God. As Paul says here in verse 8, but since we belong to lay, let us be silver, <coughs> excuse me, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet in the hope of salvation of the hope of salvation. Paul loves this metaphor of putting on the armor of God. We see it flushed out in Ephesians uh, 6, where he talks about what that means about stepping into the armor of God, where he, he goes into more detail about it. Hint, he stole it from Isaiah. But anyways, <clears throat> this concept that we put on this armor of God, that we're supposed to prepare ourselves, that we're keeping awake, we're sober, but we know that we're in a fight. That we know that as we go through this life, as we are children of light, we are walking every single day in the darkness of this world that does not know Jesus Christ. That we have an enemy before us, the enemy, who wants to do everything in his power to take our eyes off of Christ. That we have an enemy that of the world, that the, the world, the systems of belief that do not believe and submit to Jesus Christ. They want to do everything to, in their power, to make us feel awkward or to bring pressure from us from government or to bring social societal pressure against us that makes Christianity not true or makes us want to move from where we stand. That we have all these enemies before us, and Paul is saying we suit up with the armor of God. Why? So that we can take our stand against these. As he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I love that because when we talk about being suited up, I'm, I'm a guy, I like many things. It's true, I do. And so like, that's, like those that kind of inspires me. Like, yeah, I want to be a soldier, probably not last a day, but I want to be, you know, in the Roman legion marching with my brothers, and I want to stand for that fight. And it kind of moves us and pushes us, like, yeah, let's do it. But I love how Paul mentions Ephesians. We're not doing this under our own power. You think Paul is saying, okay, guys, get your act together, suit up out of your own power, and go fight the enemy. You're, you're insane. We'll never last. What the Bible says again and again is that we do it through his strength. Where Paul says, finally, be strong in his power and in his mighty strength. We do it in Christ's strength living in us. Then that's the only way we stand. And we stand together against these enemies because we know while it's nighttime now, the day is coming. That while it seems dark, and we have the enemy before us, and we stand firm in the truth of who God is and the word he has given us. And the forces are coming against us and bearing against us. We don't do it from our own power. We do it in the power of Christ, and we know, and we hope, and we long 
that as we feel weakness into our bodies and we trust in Christ and His strength, we know the day is coming. That Jesus will return. That the darkness will be vanquished. And that we have hope in that. And so we remember how we're called to act. That in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. But even more fundamental than who we are or how we're called to act, Paul tells them to remember who God is. That undergirding all of this, the comfort, the, the encouragement to Christians, Paul says, would be remembering who God is. For he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but, <coughs> but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Remember who God is. This is a God who has a destiny for us. He has a plan for us. It's a great and mighty plan. It's his plan for us to be sanctified in his son. It's his plan for us to be brought to completion at the day of the coming of the Lord. It's his plan for us to be included in his family. It's his plan for us to be adopted as sons and daughters because of the son who loves us. This is his plan for us. And because of that, he has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us to obtain the salvation he has secured for us. That our hope is not even how well we can act. Our hope is not how well we can live out being in the day. Our hope not even, is not even in who we are as his children. Our hope is in who he is. The one who has a destiny for us. The one who obtains salvation for us. The one who's going to secure it for us. We hope in him. That he secured it how? Because Jesus Christ died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, that we hope in him, that we remember who God is, all fear is driven away. For God, the maker of heavens and earth, the maker of all the cosmos, for God who spun plants in, in their places, this almighty Lord of the universe who knows us and cherishes us and it plans our destiny not for wrath but for salvation, we hope in him. And as he proved it to us by the sending of his son who saves us in spite of ourselves. So we look towards him and we hope and we cling to this truth of who he is. <coughs> Excuse me. In Christ, there is no fear of judgment. When we think about the end times or the coming judgment, what would we think the primary purpose of hearing about that be? Well, Paul says, encourage one another in it. When you're thinking about Jesus is coming back, he says, encourage one another. In verse 11, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He's commending them. They're already doing it. He says, keep on doing that. When you think about the coming of the Lord, when you think about the coming judgment, you should be encouraging one another, building each other up in this truth. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he means by that that when we see our brother or sister who gets fearful 
about what the world is or gets fearful about what is going on in the world or gets fearful about maybe where they're headed, you bring them back to this truth and say, here is your comfort, here is your hope. We have a living God who loves you, loves you so much that when you're a sinner, he still sends his son to die for you. Loves you so much that how could he, who has already given you a son, possibly not give you everything else you need? This is what we remember and hope. And so when we encourage someone else, when we build each other up, what we're building them up in, we don't look at them and say, man, you sure are nice. And I like your sense of style. No! We look at each other and say, your hope is in Christ. Your hope and it is who God is. Excuse me. <coughs> your hope is who He has made you be, remade you in Christ. That is our hope. We rebuild each other. We build each other up. Encourage us in this truth as we pick people up who are hurting, going through hardships, and we direct the gaze where it should be, which is on our Savior who loves them and cares for them. And then we walk alongside of each other because we all lose sight of Christ at points in our life. We all stumble and fall and something shiny may catch our attention and we go over here and we need our brothers and sisters at community event to kind of keep us on track saying, no, keep your eyes locked on your Savior. Keep your eyes locked on the most beautiful thing you'll ever see in this whole entire universe, which is your God. Look at his glory and wonder that he loves you. He cares for you. And we build each other up. We encourage one another with this truth that we know who Christ is and how he has loved us. Because in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. So do you fear? When we think about the coming of the end, are you fearful? Are you uncertain? Does it get you anxious? Do you wonder what's, how it's going to be when we maybe all do that at times? And if that's you, you look again to the gospel. Now, if you're fearful and you don't know the gospel, look to the gospel. Know the glorious truth of the good news of who Jesus Christ is. That he paid the debt for sinners. That he went to the cross bearing a debt that was not his. Bearing the punishment of sin that was not his, but was ours. That he gave us his right standing before the Almighty God. Remember the glorious truth of the gospel, and then we have no more place for fear in our life. Because we know who Christ is. And so when we get fearful as Christians, as believers, and we walk along, we get fearful about where the world's headed or what's going to happen or even what's going to happen when Jesus returns, we remind ourselves of the gospel once again. We get ourselves into a great community that speaks this truth of the gospel to us, that we look again afresh and remind ourselves of where our hope lies, which is in Christ. So we look again to the good news. You know the great thing about that is that it's so much more or less self-focused. That's horrible English. But it's taking the, our focus off of ourselves, how well we can achieve, how well we can live, how well we can produce, all those things. It's taking the focus off of that and putting it where it belongs, 
which is again on Christ and what he has done. That we look again afresh at the gospel. And if you fear, we also find a community of God who encourages us and builds us up with the truth from God's word. That we gather together and being honest with each other, saying, hey, I don't have this life figured out, and I stumble and I fall, and I need help, and I need this community to keep me on the straight and narrow. I need people to help redirect my gaze back on Christ, that we need to get into a community that does that. My hope and my prayer is always that this church is a community like that, that we are a body of Christ that can walk alongside each other, be real with each other in our sin, be real with each other in our struggles, but we help each other relook at who Christ is. We help each other again re-examine the gloriousness of the gospel. And then we help each other stumble towards that almighty God that we know and love, but more importantly, loves us. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do all these, these groups where we get together because hopefully those groups do that. Redirect people's gazes at who God is. And finally, if you fear... We preach the gospel to ourselves. We get in a community that helps us do that as well. But then again, we trust who God is. That fundamentally, when we start fearing about how the end is going to happen or what's going to happen, is actually a lack of trusting that God is God and no one else is. That God is the ruler of the universe. That God controls all that there is. That God is the one who's orchestrating events for his glory. That God is bringing all these little strains in this rich tapestry of his plan to fruition in this great and glorious plan that he can write about here and we can trust about it here in our lives now. That we trust in who God is and his goodness and how he has destined us for salvation in Christ to live with him, to trust in him. For in Christ, there is no fear of judgment. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it, we can know it, we can be moved by it. Lord, I pray for our time here that that you keep working in it, that you keep bringing us, bringing to mind this passage again and again, that we can reflect upon this truth and, and check it with the rest of Scripture, seeing what you're saying to us and how we should react to the coming of your Son. Lord, I pray for our church that we can be a people of the gospel that can be preaching it to ourselves and to others, that we can be a community that encourages and builds one another up so we're always redirected towards who Christ is. And Lord, I pray that we can trust in you and know the truth of your word that we can dwell, that the word can dwell richly in our hearts as we trust in you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.